It's the Holy Hour Podcast, the All Cure Podcast. I am not Dave Kendall from 120 Minutes. I'm Gavin. I tricked you. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everybody. Hope you're all ready for some Cure Talk and doing well out there. We got a wonderful string of shows, actually. A couple of themed ones coming up here um, in the next few weeks that uh, touch back more on the anniversary of Wild Mood Swings. 25 years it's been since this highly debated album came out and uh, caused such a ruckus in the Cure community out there. It's just too wild for all of us to handle on a daily basis, I guess. But um, we're going to get into it all again. Something I've been meaning to talk about um, is this magazine from DEK that came out fairly recently. I wanted to give everybody a chance to get it, though, and read it. And uh, so I'm not totally spoiling everything, but I'm going to spoil some stuff. Um, so we're going to get into the magazine this episode and uh, kind of go over some of the highlights from there and some tidbits that we pulled from this wonderful magazine that uh, hopefully everybody has by now. But before we get the show rolling, I want to kick this one off with a big shout out. Arguably some of the coolest humans on this planet who I am forever grateful. Our Patreon crew, Donna, Craig, Jeff Hilton, Jeff Jones, Suzanne, John, Ben, Allison, Alan, and Matt. And of course, straight out of Apple Valley, California. Scott Kruger, co-host of the best Star Wars podcast in the galaxy. It's called the Sarlacc Digest. And you can check it out and watch it on their YouTube page every Monday night at 8 p.m. Pacific time. Where they hash out all the latest news and rumors and line talk for everything Star Wars related. No matter what level Star Wars fan you are, they cover it all. And you're still in luck if you live in Las Vegas. They will be making a live appearance at the Vegas Unicon Convention October 1st through the 3rd, 2021 at the Downtown World Market Center. So go swing on by there and see the Sarlacc Digest crew. You can meet them in person as well as other celebrities from the Star Wars universe like Ashley Eckstein who did the uh, voice of Ahsoka on Rebels and uh, Clone Wars, Jim Cummings who does Hondo, Daniel Logan who's little baby Boba Fett but all grown up now. So tons of people over there. Go to Unicon.Vegas to get tickets if you're in Las Vegas or just keep watching the live show. I'm sure they'll give a full rundown of how it all went afterwards. Monday night, YouTube page, Sarlacc Digest, 8 p.m. Pacific Time. But, you know, if you're the kind of person that prefers Mountain Standard Time to your for your live entertainment, well, then you're in luck there, too, because Lisa would like Cure fans out there and beyond to know about Dickens, a pub up in Calgary, which is once again opening its doors, hosting shows and live events and all kinds of dancing, and you can go get yourself a drink in person again if you're vaccinated. Otherwise... You're still in luck. You get to watch the live streams. They're going to keep them rolling. And they're on Dickens YYC on Twitch on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And Sundays at 9 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. 
And you really shouldn't let a day go by. We don't check out 17 underscore seconds on Instagram to see what Chaz is up to and when the new pre-order is going to be up for whatever design he comes up with next of wonderful Cure shirts. You're not going to find these Cure shirts anywhere else. You're going to see them on Instagram in a few months. Somebody cool wearing them and you're going to be like, where the hell was that? Why didn't I know about that? Well, you have no more excuses now. Go to 17 underscore seconds, follow them on Instagram, and when the time comes, go ahead and pre-order them at 17secondshirts.bigcartel.com, and you will be part of the cool crew and have these amazing care shirts created only by 17 seconds, also known as our wonderful friend and wonderful cure talker, Chaz. And, you know, go got all that extra blood just f- sitting around in your body that you're not using? Well, our buddy Matt would like you to consider checking out the Red Cross blood donor app. During the pandemic, blood donations are much needed. And with this app, you can set up appointments and times and places to go donate. And uh, you can also track your blood once you have given it and you are still attached to it and you want to know where it went exactly. You can track which hospital it goes to afterwards. So that's pretty rad. Uh, So, you know, don't try to get it back, though, or anything. That's kind of shitty. But just download the app and see all the wonderful things you can do to help out through the Red Cross Blood Donor app. And last but not least, Kate's online shop, CureThreads.com, is an amazing online store that offers a wide variety of products that include original Cure-inspired artwork and designs created by devoted Cure fan Kate, as well as recreations of clothing that may seem a bit reminiscent of Robert Smith's own wardrobe choices. So go have a look for yourselves over there at CureThreads.com. You can get everything from thick as shit t-shirts to love cats patterned clothing to caterpillar artwork and uh, even a shower curtain that's the backdrop during plain song live it goes that deep my friends so you will not be disappointed going over to curethreads.com to check it all out all right i think that's all our business for now thanks again to our patreon crew and for making all this possible and I uh, strongly suggest you guys going over to patreon.com slash the holy hour podcast and see if that's something you want to be a part of. But enough chit chat. Let's figure out what is going on with this magazine. All right. So what do you say? We dive into this thing here, this D.E.K. magazine that has hopefully arrived for everybody that ordered it at this point. Um, I believe it was about July, right, when this came up for pre-order. It was around the same time as Record Store Day, and um, I kind of made a deal with myself since I didn't get the picture disc of Wild Mood Swings because I already have it, and I don't really care about the picture disc as much. Um, I already have it on vinyl, meaning just a regular version from back in the day. I lucked out and actually bought that one Um back in the early days so um yeah i didn't really feel like i needed to buy the the picture vinyl but i didn't want to miss out on all the action so i was like well i'll order this magazine this uh, slightly expensive magazine uh especially as you get it shipped over here to the u.s but it's a, a uk magazine i believe it's a yeah issue three so they've only done two other ones um but it's pretty rad uh, i was impressed it's oddly shaped it's about a perfect square um so about a foot on each side, I would say. Um, nice 
thick cover here and nice thick pages. Um, great photography all through the whole thing. Uh, it cost about 33 bucks uh, US dollars after shipping. So like I said, a little pricey for a magazine, but this was a special exclusive magazine for the 25th anniversary of Wild Mood Swings and would fit into your cure book collection pretty pretty nicely not like just a floppy old magazine so this definitely feels more like almost like a little book so uh if if you need further convincing i think it is good if you if you have any kind of cure book collection going you should add this into it i I totally feel like it was worth it i'm gonna probably spoil a bit of this um if you haven't ordered it and don't want to hear it you know hold off go order it if you've ordered it, let's see if uh, some of these thoughts line up with yours because I'm kind of just going to ramble through some of the thoughts that, you know, they do a real good job in this magazine of like uh, kind of telling the backstory that most of us have heard a bunch at this point. But at the same time, they kind of breeze through what was going on with the recording process of Wild Mood Swings and uh, kind of paint the picture of the times and all that going on while they recorded it, where the cure was at. Uh, but they don't dwell on that too much. And then half of it is a really cool exclusive with Robert Smith himself, uh, present day, reflecting back and his hindsight thoughts in on Wild Mood Swings in general. And then there's a really cool like track by track kind of section where he goes through each song and kind of says what he liked about it, what he doesn't like now. And uh, it's kind of a fun revisit for Robert of the album. So that's pretty cool. I'm going to kind of, I just made some notes while I've read the whole thing and uh, stuff that didn't strike me as stuff that you hear a million times or is kind of confirmed. So we'll read through it together and, uh, and I'll, uh, well, we won't read through it together. I'm not going to read you the whole magazine, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I'll tell you some stuff that stuck out to me and I uh, thought were kind of cool. So, so like I said, if you're not going to buy it, uh, listen up. Otherwise we'll see if it matches up with what you think, but I do totally recommend buying it at D E K mag.com. I believe you should be able to order it still. And uh, it got here pretty fast, surprisingly. So I was happy for that. And um yeah, the, I guess uh, let's let's take a look at it, shall we? We can start picking it apart here to begin with. The cover is real nice. It's a, another Andy Villa design. Has the little panda bear head of the toy um, that they get into in the descriptions. Um, and, and it's cool. It's got the little panda bear head on there from the 13th single cover. And um, yeah, just a cool design. The photography is really awesome on a lot of this. Um, aren't really pictures you've seen a billion times. Um, looks like the majority of them are done by Paul Cox photos. Um, but then there's a few just kind of candid ones from the recording sessions and stuff from Robert Smith and Steve Lyons collections. Let's see, the whole magazine is pretty much credited to, uh, let's see, writer Rachel Goodyear. So I'm pretty sure she's responsible for the full writing of the article which does deserve credit because i thought it was written really well where it, it doesn't like i said dwell on you know just rehashing the the history that we've heard from you know never enough book or wherever your sources are that you go or the different magazines that have just kind of said the same things over and over from this period it's written really nice and uh yeah it doesn't 
doesn't dwell in like music journalism kind of way that can get kind of annoying sometimes. So uh, really credit to her flows a lot better than like that Mojo magazine we were making fun of or some of the writing was a bit questionable. But um, yeah, so very cool. Um, credit to her. And um, yeah, so let's let's dig in just kind of the random. I tried to group them together, but they're kind of just random thoughts. And I'll try to let you know where... Or as a direct quote from Robert and what was me paraphrasing what Robert said. But for the most part, we'll stick to that format. So, um, yeah, to begin with, it starts out pretty early where he's saying he's revisiting uh, that uh, the Wild Mood Swings album for um, this interview and such. And he says, yeah, that there is a reissue planned for Wild Mood Swings. It's a couple years down the line. <laughs> and um, so what would that be like a... Five years from now, maybe, would be if he's not doing the 25th anniversary. I don't know. Maybe they won't be dwelling on the anniversary thing so much and just re-release it. Maybe like right after the Wish one that will come out next year. We'll get this one, but here I go again. So uh, who knows? But he says there is a reissue plan down the line. Then later in it, he says that there are seven songs that haven't been heard in any kind of format because um, there are demos of this that kind of float around out there if people aren't familiar you could probably somebody's probably uploaded them to youtube and such at this point but um there are demo versions of a lot of the uh, uh, songs on this album uh, that are kind of like the deluxe reissues where they're usually just instrumental or slightly different feel you know or a little just first take kind of versions of them. Um, nothing drastically different, but I'm sure they would be on a deluxe reissue. But these seven songs that we'd never heard, you know, normally be like, well, yeah, I don't know. Is that really much to get too excited about? But at this point, when you look at the B-sides of Wild Mood Swings, and so, so obviously, and this is something that's going to come up constantly and has always come up with Wild Mood Swings is the song choice and what this and the decisions made. So... In a sense, that's good news that there's seven songs out there that we've never even heard. Judging, you know, like stuff just got picked and shuffled and, you know, there could be some gems in there still. So who knows? Fingers crossed. But that's kind of cool to know that at least it's he's at least the first step of mentioning it for the next 20 years. And then we'll see. I mean, obviously, the wish reissue should come out probably before this. But uh, let's not go there. All right, so reissue coming down the line um, says, while doing this, Robert Smith also mentioned he's been compiling thoughts, and this is a direct quote, compiling thoughts for a biography, but at this point has only made it up to 1993. Basically, he was saying it's been fun revisiting this album because he has been going back through everything, compiling his thoughts for a biography. And just kind of mentioned that in passing where it's like, I don't know if he's meaning the Tim Pope, documentary thing if that's still even a thing um or if it's a full-on book at this point or what um but apparently he's compiling thoughts for a biography which is also like okay so that's what you're working on too um so that's cool um but he's only up to 93 so he hadn't really gotten to wild mood swings thoughts so they're all kind of fresh off the top of his head while he's doing this interview it sounds like uh, pretty early on, too, when he's talking about the demo phases of uh, Wild Mood Swings and when they first start recording again with the idea of songs for this album, uh, he drops that actually Boris had hung in there longer than I originally had thought. 
and was part of the demo process with him. Um, it sounds like later he'll talk about this acoustic approach that they were going to start out with. Uh, the initial vision for Wild Mood Swings uh, was to be a Nick Drake type album, which he said a billion times, but usually in reference to his um, alleged solo album. One of them was going to be a more acoustic-y Nick Drake kind of feeling album. And he said that's what Wild Mood Swings was going to be for the most part, whether it be the solo album or that. But uh, he said a few of the songs stuck around from that, like Bear, Numb, and Jupiter Crash which all kind of fit the bill, right? They're all like super acoustic heavy with brush drums and stuff like that. Um, but apparently Boris was around for those. Um, part of me would want to initially think that Boris was like, you know, cause this is coming off the heels of like burn, maybe not heels. It was a little before it, but, uh, so burn came out and then like want, you know, was in that vein. Um, but really, he's saying Boris was kind of in the demo phases for this acoustic thing, which also makes sense. Boris got really, like, percussion kind of heavy by the end of, like, Wish and stuff. He was really getting into that more, you could tell. Um, just, you know, not the full-on rock drums as much, maybe. Um, so that would have been pretty rad. The more I read about that in this article and stuff, maybe you'll start to get converted, too. But the idea of that acoustic album... It's kind of rad, really. I normally I've been like, eh, because like the whole unplugged thing got a little overplayed in the mid '90s, you know, where everything, you know, I guess when it starts on the surface, you feel like, uh, like more like the acoustic thing that came along with the Greatest Hits album, because that just sounds like live acoustic, and that's cool in its time and place, but like a whole new album of that, it's like, eh. But when you think of like jupiter crash and stuff how they're like still have some cool swirls and sounds and it's produced there's a billion layers still going on if you do acoustic like that that's cool so we're not talking like starbucks reimagining of whatever acoustic how those are always kind of awful you know um i think this could have been really cool just like really chill with like songs like bear and stuff and the drums are just kind of more wishy-washy with that you know i I don't know. Maybe I'm just officially becoming an old fart where I'm like, that sounds kind of cool. But, um, yeah, it's something to keep in mind as he talks about the different approaches to this album. But, yeah, pretty cool, too, to think that Boris was in there on those. Um, hopefully that wasn't the reason why I left or he was just like, oh, I don't know. I don't like where this is going. But I think it was pretty fair to say he just had had his time and he was done at that point, too. So... As far as drummers, too, they also go into the auditioning process a bit more. We've speculated in the past of, like, how much overlap of these guys was going on, why he chose Jason over the other dudes, and there's still not a ton of detail, um, but there's a little more scoop in here. It says Mark Price, Ron Austin, uh, Louis Pavlo, and Jason Cooper were the four drummers that they Barely, I'm sure they auditioned tons more and stuff too, but those were the four that like made it out to the studio and and recorded tracks, rehearsed, you know. And he said we're all somewhat auditioning at the same time though. I kind of always thought like they'd run the course with one and then grabbed another and then grabbed another and eventually settled on Jason. But it sounds like they're all kind of floating in around at the same time. There was some overlap anyway, and um, Robert would assign specific new songs based on what he thought were their best drumming skills and stuff like that. So he tried to handpick songs that would match their styles a bit more. Um, and then they'd have like side hangouts with them 
um, at the St. Catherine's Mansion there, or we'll get into the excess of everything that was going on at this giant place that they're recording for a very long time, and uh, which is kind of funny coming off the heels, too, of our hyena episode and how ridiculous that seemed that that album was taking forever but here in the cure doing it now where they're just basically living in this mansion just recording this album forever it seems like basically they'd have these huge long dinners um and they'd get to know the drummers a bit more and he said he didn't want to just choose the best drummer you know like skill wise he said it had to be a good fit of course and uh personality wise Jason was definitely the winner in the end. Um, sound like he said everyone just perked up when Jason was around and rejuvenated the band, uh, and they really just clicked well personality-wise. So, so that's kind of cool to hear, and that's kind of what we had assumed in other episodes when we kind of wondered, like, well, why not? This Mark Price dude sounds pretty rad on Mint Car. Why didn't they keep him around and stuff? So... Um, I'm sure there's a billion other factors, like maybe those drummers just didn't want to hang out in this mansion for an entire year and had other projects they were working on too. Ultimately, Jason was the best fit, and I think we were all grateful and happy it worked out that way. So yeah, as mentioned earlier, and as we all know, they rented Jane Seymour's mansion. It was initially only rented from January to April, though, um, and of course... That would get extended quite a bit. They liked their time there and were having a blast, so they extended it for the full year of 95, I believe it was, and um, started just hosting these huge dinners with like a waiting staff and everything. So uh, this is where he starts to kind of just admit everything was just in excess and it was getting out of control fast and Robert was just having a blast. So basically didn't want it to end, and that kind of goes back to the idea of like, all the bullshit that was going on during the time in Cure history, you know, losing two very key members, uh, the court case with Lowell, um, you know, you could tell he just kind of wanted to retreat into making music so much to the point where even when you start looking at the album and its criticisms and reviews of the album and how it's just all over the place. He almost went into the recording this without having any real songs and stuff. Um, which is odd for them and so there's so much like just make it up on the fly going on with this record and it shows for sure but at the same time it kind of makes me like it more in a sense too where I just I don't know I want to say feel sorry for them because they're having like this <laughs> totally like uh, you know excessive indulgence of recording in a studio but at the same time it kind of felt like it was a retreat from reality for him in a sense where he was just like, fuck it, I just want to have fun and, and make these songs. And it doesn't really matter if we don't have any songs right now, we'll find songs, you know? And Because uh, he, he had mentioned he had paid for a lot of the technical stuff himself, like those sound boards and, and mixing boards and all these kind of things to put in there. So I wonder how much of his own money he was sinking into this like huge dinners and everything too and having everyone just come out and stay with them for weeks and stuff so uh you know he further admits throughout this interview that it was just this crazy like out of control not like partying so much it's more like uh just hanging out and you know having like these huge meals and stuff and 
and just taking their time with the recordings like way too much but at the same time it must have been fun as hell so but i wonder who the hell was paying for all this like fiction <laughs> it was like i mean i guess wish did really well so i mean sinking all that money back into it so anyway We'll see more evidence of that as it goes along. While recording, Robert got the idea too. Um, since they're using different drummers, he's pretty much just given into the fact at this point that the recording is going to have different final drummers on it, which is a little odd. Like, I don't know why once they settled on Jason, they just didn't have him re replace it all. Um, but, you know, maybe he just really liked those recordings and feels of it, so he didn't want to lose those those tracks but you you would think any album that doesn't have like a cohesive drummer through the whole thing is gonna be a little all over the place to say the least right so i mean there's already a shining example of the mood swings you know instead of maybe i just early on he decided he was gonna embrace this idea that the songs are just gonna be all over the place so with that in mind he says i'm gonna just have other musicians in here too that aren't necessarily cure members so that's where they start recruiting in like a brass section and strings and stuff like that and bringing in other instruments that wouldn't normally be used on cure records um he said even that was an excess and starting to get out of control because they just started bringing in all these other people to play and all these horns on albums and stuff that they're never going to be able to fully recreate live unless they tour with these people in their band so um, even the bass guitars and the guitars and, you know, like the core instruments, he said that they would just set up different, like three different rigs for each instrument all in different rooms around the mansion because it was so huge they could do that. So they would just set up like a whole guitar setup, you know, with different amps and different pedals and guitars in one room and just do like a whole other setup in another room. That way he could hop around from room to room doing whatever sound and then pick the best one but i mean good god that's you know, why it took so long if you're doing that kind of thing for like basses and stuff too it's like jeez so um so yeah he was really just trying to embrace this whole uh making it different let each song kind of go in its own direction at this point i think he had given in and signed on to the idea of the wild mood swings concept non-concept uh, he said he wanted the whole album to feel like a singles collection so uh you know you get the idea there which is like okay i almost get that you know but he's missing the catch that the songs have to be you know cure singles caliber and um as much as i even want to defend certain songs on this there's a lot that are far from like cure singles caliber especially as for a whole album's worth you know so uh the songwriting might not be there enough to pull off this idea but that's kind of why you know like when you listen to galore standing on the beach they don't you know it's a singles collection so of course it doesn't flow the way an album would he wanted that feel for it but you know, so it does hop around a lot like that, but it's like if the songs aren't singles, you can't really do that. <laughs> so, uh, nice try, though. Uh, so, not mentioned in this, but I believe Chris Perry finally did have to say at some point, look, it's got to be done by this date, and enough of this bullshit, you're dragging in a song way too long, probably getting them checks for all these dinners and stuff at that point. Um, so the excess found a way to continue into the mixing process on directly or maybe directly too, because they ran out of time. 
um, as we talked about in the Wild Mood Swings episode. So Robert and Steve Lyons came up with the idea of outsourcing the mixes, basically, where they would uh, just send off all the the unmixed stuff to um, artists and producers all around, different types, and get a billion different mixes from other people to save time instead of them sitting there trying to plug away at each each uh, final mix and um again that definitely adds to the convoluted nature of this album he touches on in this article that uh, a couple came out disastrous though they would come back to him he said there was he didn't want to disclose who did the mix but it was for round and round and he said it was just horrid it was just vocals he'd pulled everything out except for vocals and a drum machine that they had tracked in there <laughs> and uh, said it was just absolutely terrible which i can imagine would be pretty bad just the vocals and a drum machine for that song um it's funny he said that song because that's you know the one i always cite is pretty much the worst track on this album um and so maybe it wasn't the mix that was so bad that was the problem maybe it's the song but um you know maybe that was that producer's way of saying the song's terrible just the only thing he sent back was the vocals and a drum machine <laughs> it's like maybe if i just butcher this mix so bad they won't use it on the album so maybe that producer was doing his part to cut that song from the album and it didn't work somebody else mixed it um so yeah a lot of just bad ideas a lot that they liked but then they would argue over the mixes between each other and then Robert and Steve Lyons would mix a few of the songs on the album. So, again, that's why it's all over the place. You know, you don't even have the same people doing the same approach to the songs and the mixing. So that's definitely going to be... And, you know, that's further why those singles had, like, you know, five versions of Gone on there and three versions of Mint Car and stuff. That's like That makes sense more now in hindsight. We used to complain about all those billion singles that have, like one extra dumb mix on it. I'm like, what the hell's the point of this extra single? It almost seemed like a money grab thing, but it's really just, they, it's so hard to decide on a final mix of something when you get like 15 different mixes for it. Anyway, that point in the article, they um, do mention the artwork as the album finally does start to settle into its final mixes. And um, he talks about Andy Vela and he says, usually it is credited as Andy Vela and the cure when they decide on a concept for the art design and stuff. He said, but it's usually, he's just being nice. Robert again, it's always Robert and Andy the band usually doesn't have any say. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't really make it sound like he dictates it. Like maybe they don't even care or want to really put in any two cents, but he says it's usually him and, Andy doesn't really mention any of the Pearl angle, too, but um, I guess he's talking more recent stuff. Um, so the concept of uh, of the art came from Robert's old toys. So those were his old toys, and he said he brought the idea to Andy, and Andy ran with it, and they liked it a lot. And I do like it, too. Um, at least it's probably the most cohesive aspect of Wild Mood Swings is the actual artwork and how they all fit in a theme, <laughs> unlike the album. But he liked the split-faced clown the best because, you know, it kind of symbolizes the split personalities of Wild Mood Swings and stuff, so the clown got the cover image. Robert wanted it to be a negative, though, and I believe that's the image that's on the picture disc, they said. I didn't get it, so I don't know. So, But I, I believe that I've seen it before in like ads and stuff, too. It's like a negative 
a wider shot of the little clown toy, I believe. So, um, yeah. Um, so they did. Andy didn't though. So they went with a close-up shot, which I like is a little more vague. You don't know what what that is exactly on first glance. So the mixes are done, the artwork's done, the album comes out, the tour gets a mention too, um, and just how that was kind of in excess too, and a little massive, overly done. He called it the evil Disney theme of the broken down roller coasters and such. But he's like, yeah, even the tour was a bit over the top. 15 trucks, 55 crew members. Called it a financial disaster. Um, I don't know if that's all in reference to the production side of it, or um, you know, as we all know, at some point on that tour they start having trouble even selling the tickets and stuff, which is just mind-boggling. But uh, it, it happened, and um, and I remember it being really cool though. Going to those shows, I, I remember the set looked really awesome. Um, but technically. Another idea that might have fallen a bit short in the grand scheme of wild, wild mood swings and uh, maybe Robert being a little disconnected from the world at that point trying something like that. Um, so quickly, Robert also realized how hard it would be to play a lot of these songs on the tour and live. So I'm sure he knew it before they actually started playing it, but at the same time, uh, he admits that you know that kind of hurt some of the songs because he couldn't really do songs like 13th and Gone, right? A lot of those just don't sound right with like synth horns or a billion vocal tracks and stuff thrown in there because it was just such a hugely produced album uh, with so many parts. So he feels like that kind of hurt the live shows because they wanted to play a lot of these songs live, but they just didn't translate. Um, so he says the good and the bad of wild mood swings were the same things, basically. He says, I was just enjoying myself way too much. I should have made two albums in this time, the acoustic one, and then made a wild weird one after that. Um, so yeah, <laughs> which does make more sense, uh, when you look at it. It's a little funny when we know the current context of The Cure, and here he is even with an album that came out in 96 and he's talking about multiple albums and how he should have done this. And so maybe if he hadn't modern thinking going on, that probably wouldn't have been a good idea because he'd still be working on them. But, uh, but it does make sense on the surface of, cause they lost focus going into the recording of this, where it did start out with that acoustic thing. And it sounded like that made it a lot further than I thought, you know, if bear and Jupiter crash and all were kind of stemmed off of that probably should have just stuck with that direction um since you do have a four-year gap going i mean obviously he had other stuff going on and the band was falling apart and reforming and stuff like that you know i'm not really sure what like a song want or something would fall into the weird wild album i get like the more acoustic type songs um but then you're still gonna have a few oddballs in there for sure um and then obviously you can put like Gone and 13th and stuff like that all on one record would be a separate one. So as we've talked about in the past of like rearranging with your files and stuff and playlists, it's just kind of the running joke at this point is everybody redoes Wild Mood Swings, whether you just reshuffle the track order or add in the B-sides or cut stuff all together just to make it an EP. Um, whatever you're doing, everybody's is always different. But it would be fun exercise for everybody out there 
to try the two albums, make like the more acoustic heavy one and then the wild weird one and see if that holds up better. Because, yeah, he could have done one in like 90, what, 94 and one in 96. So it was technically enough time. Um, but who knows? So hindsight, right? Uh, I do think want, you know, if they, he had that fairly early, they could have come out as a standalone single and put like burn as the B side even, uh, cause that was only on the crow soundtrack. A lot of people or flip it even, uh, just put burn out as a single, even after it, it did really well and everyone loved it from the crow soundtrack. So, uh, cause those songs pair well together. You know, we always said it would be great to have had a whole album of that kind of stuff where every song was in that vein and of those two songs, but might get a little exhausting too, by the track eight. But anyway, at this point he does the hindsight track by track review. So this is cool. I wish he had this for like every album. It's kind of like a lot of those cool things you read on cure news you know, where it's like uh, just quick thoughts of at the moment, you know, with Robert, it's going to change from week to week. But uh, kind of neat to just have an official opinion that he's given each song as he goes through it and is listening back to it. So uh, I'll just read you the highlights I jotted down and uh, see if his matching matches your opinions of these songs since everybody's got opinions on wild mood swing songs for sure. So... But like I said, it's funny because everyone will make a different version of this album. But everybody's is always different, you know? Like the people that are like, oh, yeah, that's the absolute worst song they ever recorded. But it'll be a different one than somebody else chooses on Wild Mood Swing. So that's another weird aspect of this album is that it really gets strong emotions from people. But they're never 100% match up. I feel like everybody's mix final mix of this album would be different. And maybe that's where the problem fell again between him and Steve Lyons, him and the band, him and Chris Perry's. I mean, when you look at some of these weird ass choices of the track order and the track selection and stuff, it's like, yeah, that's probably why it was like that. So let's dive in see what, what the man himself thinks of each of these songs. And maybe that'll, skew or match with your opinions want the lead off track um the first post acoustic session song he said so once they kind of officially dropped the idea of doing the acoustic album they rocked out with want and uh sounds like it it's pretty badass in the vein of a lot of epic cool slow building rock cure songs uh robert smith says it's still one of his favorites from wild mood swings so we're all in the same boat there he says it always gets a good reaction live so that helps especially when the strings kick in which is totally true confidently say it without looking at any actual numbers but um the most reoccurring song from wild mood swings in the live sets still most of these will not survive past the swing tour um, as far as being played you never know with the cure they could pop up <laughs> anytime if they ever tour again uh, but for the most part i think uh this one is still a pretty good chance that this would pop up in a set so and rightfully so one that won't probably ever pop up again and i don't think anyone's gonna really complain is club america track two um this was based off of a simon bass line um and he said it's a nod to bowie 
and it's uh, a fundamentally flawed song. <laughs> so uh, he says that he was going for a Bowie-esque voice on this album, so that makes sense. He always used to say it was his American voice, that kind of piggy-in-the-mirror voice that he does, you know, sometimes. It does make sense that it would be like kind of a Bowie-type character voice or something that he's trying to do. It makes me understand the song a little bit better, maybe, but... um. Uh, yeah, and it still doesn't hurt. He says that it's the bridge that really falls apart on the song, and I'm not really sure which part he means of that with the bridge. Is it the stick-on-stars part, or, um, such a wonderfully, wonderful person, really a fabulous life, that part? I don't know. Seems like those are the courses to me, but I don't know. Either way, I don't think it's that that ruins the song. The whole thing's pretty much a train wreck from the start, in my opinion. Um, I usually try to credit the guitars for at least rocking out, but I had it on the other day, and even those are just kind of like a little over the top with the wah-wahs and just like, what the hell is happening in this song? just more odd that it's track two we'll get into the song order a bit too robert even admits that the, the track running order on this album is like completely bonkers but um yeah why the fuck they would put this number two i have no idea um but anyway there it is club america so it sounds like he's pretty much of the same line of thinking though like yeah i don't know somebody must have convinced him this is a lie is three track three um, Perry brought this one in and Robert says he still likes this one. Um, it does feel a bit like it doesn't deliver though. Cause he's singing it from another person's perspective. He says, he says that rarely works for him. Um, if he didn't, if he did it over, he'd make it more like last day of summer, um, with more like base six parts and such, which I'm not sure I fully get where he's going with that. But anytime you, replacing stuff with bass six parts that's a good idea and last day of summer is a way better song so yeah <laughs> I, I would definitely agree that he should do it more like that it does kind of lose gas something about like this is a lie where it starts out real nice and then it just kind of just plodding along kind of thing you know so um and but funny he says the singing it from other people's perspectives thing because I always kind of assumed a lot of the songs that we think are these super personal songs. He's probably just reading from the perspective of somebody in a book or something. So maybe he does do that a lot, but um, this was taken from an actual person's perspective and he just feels like he can't get into the character enough to, to sing it with justice. But um, I don't know. I was a little surprised by that. I thought he probably took on different a character and, um, but maybe everything is more ripped directly from his soul than we thought. So, wow. All right. Yeah, this is a lot. I think there's like a, what, a version on Join the Dots that's just pretty much his vocals over just strings. That one I always thought kind of works a little better. So I'd always take that mix. If I was, when I remember doing like a revisionist of this album, I took that mix because it actually did sound better on this one when the strings kind of took over everything more. Um... But that's just my opinion. Like everybody's got a different opinion on this album. So, uh, but this would have fit on that acoustic album too. I don't know if it was part of that. So yeah, that's one to put in there. 
Next track, 13, the leadoff single. He says, maybe not the best idea to make it the leadoff single. In hindsight, it lowered fans' expectations. It's great by itself, but hard to fit it into an album. Plus, not being able to do it justice live makes it hard to love, he says. So, all that makes total sense. Um, and he gets into it, and in books and such, he's mentioned that too, where it was kind of just, he was pretty stubborn about this being the first single. More in the Robert Smith, I want to throw a curveball kind of way, you know? Um, and it definitely was weird. I remember being like, whoa, what is this song? that, that We've been waiting forever for a new Cure single, and then the 13th comes out. You're just like, what the hell? Um, I think because people were turned off a bit by it. That's what he's saying. It lowered their expectations of the album. So then they're just kind of like, eh, um, when they started hearing more and more of the album. But uh, I think it is a cool song, too. I still stand by that, too. It's definitely their weirdest, I think. <laughs> and, um, in a cool way, you know, but yeah, it probably would have been a standalone single again, you know, I guess he was just really, and then the nineties, everything was back to such the album concept. Well, nowadays they could have just dropped this as a single again, really easy and nobody would have batted an eye, you know, could have just been this one weird one-off single and then they could have made the album flow a little better. But, you know, can't change that, right? So, uh, can't really blame him either. But I like that he still likes the song, too. I think if they had, like, like those few live versions that are out there where they have, like, the live horns and stuff, it is cool. Um, so, it works when you do it like that. But, yeah, you can't do Why Can't I Be You synth horns kind of thing for a song like that. So, and luckily they don't try it that often either. I don't think they ever did. Um, Maybe a couple times on tour, the swing tour, they played it. I don't remember if they had, like, people there or if it was just they tried it with the synths. And Ooh. Speaking of bad synth sounds, the next song, Strange Attraction, I was kind of laughing at what he said about this one because it was always what I had said. It matched up with the idea that there's just something missing with this song. It says, you know, he likes it still, um, like the way I like it, but then there's just something in it, whether it be the mix or what, I always blame the synth sounds, I just thought it sounded a little too goofy. You know, that kind of thing, I was just like, eh, they should have plucked, maybe used like some more kind of natural organic instruments a bit more or something, but, uh, he says something was missing two halves of the song and then the second half always just lost people live or they would just kind of glaze over and not really be able to finish the song out with them. He could tell from the reactions. Um, so yeah, I 100% dig the lyrics though. And it sounds like he does too. They're really good. Cool lyrics. Tell this weird little story, but yeah, I don't know. It just somehow doesn't land either. So it was funny. I've, with the idea of the acoustic thing it was like something like this almost would be really cool to hear it like over like some brush drums or something almost do it in the kind of new wave jazzy feel of like you know love cats and and gone even if they'd stripped it down or something and just done it with like more acoustic instruments and stuff and have it over like a little brush drum shuffle kind of thing um almost to the point too where i just started covering it um on my acoustic guitar just slow it down because and make the lyrics the focus a bit more you know make it like kind of a goth folk song you know so uh 
it's been fun to play just because you really can't emphasize the lyrics and how good they are so maybe he should have done something like that would have been kind of cool to hear just like uh strip it down more lose all the you can keep the little riff but just do it on something different because it does just sound so like i don't know like not the best keyboard tone choices there anyway um mint car also originated from a simon bass line the bass line is super rad on this song no doubt there and even haters of this song i feel like would credit this bass line to being pretty rad um we're gonna try to do an episode coming up soon where we talk about mint car and in general is just a whole focus on mint car episode um so that'll be cool it might even come out before this one i don't know but um so yeah i won't dwell on this one too much because i'll probably repeat myself over and over but it is he still stands by the idea that this is a better pop song than friday i'm in love and it just didn't get a fair shot really as far as chart success or being a hit whatever you want to call it um i'm not sure i totally agree friday i'm in love is just such a quirky fun song that works a little better i love the song though i mean i like mint car a lot i feel like the lyrics are kind of weak um and it sounds a little just kind of surface level robert smith writing but at the same time um i agree it should have been a hit um he says that it's not really you know the band was just in the spot to have a hit in friday i'm in love era you know it wish there everything was just lined up for a hit there and they just weren't in the position to have a hit for mint car which does make sense you know there's so much more to it than just it being a catchy cool song just where the band's at at this time and place of the release so gotta agree with that jupiter crash robert loves this one still he says he just loves the overall mood and it came out exactly how he wanted so everything was perfect with that one um, and I think, again, most Cure fans would agree this is definitely a highlight of the record. Um, no matter where you stand on the record as a whole, I think most people are pretty cool with Jupiter Crash. The, just has a great bass line, and like you said, the mood and the feel of the song is really awesome. And again, kind of late, puts merit to this idea of the acoustic album. I feel like if everything kind of flowed the way this song does, that would have been kind of cool, like a dreamy, weird, layered acoustic album could have been really cool for them to put out in the mid 90s followed by round and round and round everybody's favorite <laughs> he says should have been a b-side which i still think is being kind of generous uh chris, apparently chris perry suggested just cutting some of the tracks out altogether, but being um stubborn robert said that this one benefited from that and he just kept it on there basically being stubborn and uh, Tully should have been cut, I think, altogether, in my opinion, of course. Um, of all the B-sides, too, there's, like, way better B-sides than this song, even. So even swapping this out for a B-side, I think, would be silly. Um, earlier in the article, Robert also said, if you play round and round ten times, and every time you get silence after it finishes, you don't want to play it an eleventh time. Referring to it just never went over well live and how in contrast to want people really you know it's well received live but he's saying round and round you play it 10 times it just and it falls flat nobody wants to hear it or it doesn't even make you want to play it an 11th time Yeesh. gone is another one robert actually likes a lot he says on this one he says it's a lost gem on wild mood swings 
and uh, it only faded away because it's so hard to play live, he says. Um, and I don't know. I'm always torn on this one. I used to really love it. Maybe not love it, but I was always like thought it was fun and cool song at the era. And then somewhere about 10 years out, I just totally lost any real love for the song. It just gets kind of annoying and, and long and just kind of bleh. But um, But it does pull off what it's trying to do. I'm starting to come back around maybe where it is kind of just this goofy kind of new wave jazz song picking up like, you know, what they didn't really explore much with Love Cats and that kind of single and speak my language and stuff, you know, or he could have, it's just so like big compared to those. I feel like if they had stripped this down again, like I was saying earlier, it might be a little cooler even. Um, just kind of do it as like, you know, two horns <laughs> and like one horn even and, and just like a really stripped down three piece kind of band or something with upright bass. But, um, could have been a lot core, but, uh, but it does work even as a big overproduced single. Um, I feel like it's one where the mixes sound good and it doesn't feel, um, it's just such a weird song too. I don't think it should have been a single either. Maybe could have made that the B side to 13th and just done those as standalones, you know, cause how the hell do you follow that on an album? I don't know. You follow it with numb, I guess. Uh, this one is arguably worse than round and round, in my opinion. A lot of people stand by it, though. When, when I see people's revisions of Wild Mood Swings, this one actually makes the cut for a lot of people. And Robert even seems like he's still enough on board with it where he wouldn't cut it totally. But I just think it's such a throwaway song. The lyrics are just so, like, in love with the drug. It's just too out there, like, in plain sight for him you know it's just like usually he dirties it up with some kind of weird imagery more and I'm just like ugh. but he does confirm it's about Kurt Cobain in this article uh, which makes me kind of hate it even more really uh, just because everybody was writing a song about Kurt Cobain in the 90s and it seems a little trite you know and obvious but uh, they didn't even meet each other uh, it's not like they had some connection or anything he says yeah he just says as an artist you know they felt a connection but um he said he had forgotten how much it meant to him, actually, so maybe they'll dig this one up for the next tour or something, but I'm like, ugh, please don't. Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know, but he said he, he still likes it. Um, what else did he say? Oh, he loves the Indian violin on it, um, so the strings on that. So this was another one that was supposed to go along with the um, acoustic album, so ugh. there we go make that a b-side or something on the acoustic album all right return is one he was really sour on <laughs> he said this one just shouldn't have been on the album it doesn't say anything new it means something to me but someone should have said no <laughs> direct quote so um yeah this is one early on i didn't really have a problem with it either because it's funner and more upbeat and stuff but definitely a lot, didn't have a very long shelf life. I got sick of it real quick and realized it's a pretty weak song by their standards. Um, never played again after the swing tour. Like I said, a lot of these. Um, I remember, I think what really kind of soured me on it was when they played it on 120 minutes for some reason. They had like multiple songs when they were on there. And I just remember it really standing out how thin and weak it was when they did it live, you know? And I was just like, ugh, that's just kind of a terrible song. And I think it is exactly what he says where it just doesn't say anything new. Where it's like, it's weird when poppy songs fall flat. 
because if you have like this slow kind of moody song, you know, like a lot of Blood Flowers ones where they're not necessarily bad, they just kind of like have some emotion, you either just get into it or you don't. And those don't bother me, but like when a pop song is supposed to be like fun and say something and it's just kind of not really going anywhere, but it's, you know, it just kind of stands out more like bad dancing or something. But, um, well, I don't know. It, it just never bothered me that much at the time, but then now I just can't, it would be one I would totally cut all together too. Uh, this doesn't really hit any of the spots is what I'm getting at. I guess the other cure songs that are poppy, like cover everything that the song would want to say but better and the emotions and the feel and all the good time or whatever that you're having listening to this song it's like are just done way better in other cure songs so if there weren't any other cure songs maybe i'd love this one more but uh that's not really much to say for a song is it so anyway i'm with robert let's cut that one all together um so yeah maybe this is also a good spot to mention that Numerous times in this article, Robert says, I wish somebody had just stepped up and said, one, this album should be shorter. Mint Car should have been the leadoff single, not the 13th. Um, don't drag out the recording process. He's kind of hinting that this, he just kind of got wrapped up in his own head and stuff and was calling too many of the shots and he wished people had stood up. And But then it was like when I was looking up just any kind of tidbits in that Never Enough book by Jeff Apter, um for mint car a later episode we're doing it's funny because steve lyons the co-producer says that he told robert all these things indirectly he's like yeah i told him he shouldn't put a 13th out first we should do mint car we had a big argument about it and then later in another section he's like yeah you know I, i tried to tell robert we should probably trim the album down a little bit but uh you know he just wouldn't listen so i don't know if he just flat out ignored steve lyons and forgot that he ever even bounced those ideas off him or what but it's funny to this day in current time him saying i wish somebody had told me no when somebody did steve lyons was telling you no the whole time but uh Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he wasn't saying it loud enough or something. Maybe he was just like, hey, uh, Robert, maybe we should um, so, shut up. I'm trying to do this. <laughs> so who knows? But uh, it, it's kind of funny. Trap, uh, as we wound down the album here. Trap, Robert says, he has mixed the feelings, mixed feelings about still. It's a really angry song about someone specific, and it jars me a bit too much now. So... It kind of makes our theory of it being about Lowell make sense more. Uh, we're saying it fits the theory and timing of that, you know, with this album perfectly. Kind of slightly disguised as a relationship song, but um, it, you know, totally could capture everything he wants to say about Lowell at that time in, in history. So that would make sense that he would feel a little weird about it now if they're, you know, cool again or at least at peace. Yeah, so he said it was supposed to be a rock song that accompanied Want, so something a bit more Want-ish. It does rock. I always took it more of as like a a subpar version of Cut. You know, it's in the same vein as Cut, but Cut's a way better song. Uh, A lot of people have a problem with Cut, too, but I think that song's rad. Uh, This one's still cool. It works good, and it's good to have a good rocking one. Like he's saying, I think it's just the fitting of it is a little weird because it's so far from want at this point that you don't make that connection. It's coming out of these weird, like, new wave jazzy songs and it's coming out of, like, these acoustic-y songs like Numb and then it's bleeding into, and this is what he seemed to have the most problem with, was that it segues into Treasure 
Which is odd, though, because he cites that as a problem with it. You can't just go into treasure after a trap because um, it's too much of a contrast. And they've had, like, very drastic contrast in their running orders before, but uh, I don't know. And he does it again on the five swing thing that he put together, so I don't know why he did it on that one, too, if it was that big of an issue. Um, but, yeah, it's just it should be somewhere else on the album, but I'd hold on to it at least. Treasure, though, he says is a nice song and one of his favorites, too, from this album. Uh, he said it was recorded during a phase when he and Perry were trying to put a drum machine on everything as an ex just an exercise or a maybe not exercise, but just try out the idea of maybe you just use drum machines for everything. Maybe it was a week when none of the drummers were really blowing them away. But um, and this one stuck. He said, luckily, somebody talked him out of the drum machine idea altogether. But for this song, it actually worked a bit because there is like a loop with live drums too um i don't know it's, it's funny he says that though because i i kind of like the idea of the drum machine i wonder what angle the whole album would have taken if it had been an all drum machine album but at the same time uh this one it's as much as i love treasure it's probably like favorite song on the album almost or arguably depending on the day um but the drum loop machine part of it isn't what I like about it. I always kind of wonder if that works. You know, they could have just done like a chill drum beat to it and it would have worked maybe even a little better. But, uh, eh, I don't know. I still love the song. So, yeah, like you said, he just didn't like the way it trapped. Then it just goes into the super depressing last part of the album, which doesn't really fit the, the fun, wild nature of the album, I guess. Going from like Treasure into Bear... And Bear it was one of those early acoustic songs. He says it's just too long now and should have been cut down somehow. I remember reading in Never Enough, I think it was, somewhere where he was saying that they did try for a long time to trim down Bear, but it just never felt natural or right when they would cut a section out. And I kind of agree, even though it's a long tune, I feel like it kind of does have to, you have to play it out and hear the whole all the agony in there you know and especially if you're going to keep it as the final song i think it's fine to do that if it'd been in the middle of the album or something you know that would be a little weird but uh but yeah i don't have any problem with it being long if you know why not right uh it's a cool song i really like it it's probably one of my favorites on the album too so i think that's why i always think favorably of this album a lot more than a lot of people is just because it ends with these two songs that i really love Got something left to say Got to say so as he starts to wrap up his thoughts on the album, he says, Wild Mood Swings was let down by the running order, and it's too long. So that's kind of a bottom line thing he's saying, and definitely agree. Um, the, like we said a billion times, the running order is all over the place. You could swap out B-sides all day you could rearrange stuff everyone has a different idea of what would sound better and if you lined up 50 different people's final mixes of wild mood swings i bet you all of them would be completely different um <clears throat> the the too many songs thing is interesting because i totally agree they could have cut it down to 12 real easy cut it down to 10 cut down to 8 i think it would have been even fine but um but in his defense I feel like we can't totally blame him because that was a 90s thing more like every album you pull up any album from the 90s and they started stretching to 14 tracks for everyone and like 9 out of 10 albums they all have like about 3 songs at least that you could totally live without you know they're just like put it all on there I don't know if it was just like a CD thing where they just started saying we got room now you can put them on there but 
totally hurts the flow of the album and may have been what kind of killed the album concept in a sense it's just too much you know and it's just you get exhausted you forget what the hell happened at the beginning of the album and really just kills the flow because you can't make something flow as easy that long it really has to be a full concept and it's just this mysterious number somewhere after 12 i feel like it's real hard unless you got a few little shorty tracks in there somehow but i think that's another problem from the cure is that they don't have any of those you know so it's like all these kind of epically long ones and you'll see that stretch all the way through like definitely the self-titled album like that thing just just you know a lot of it's just my opinion of that album of course but like that thing is just exhausting i don't think i've ever like played it again immediately after you know even when i'm enjoying listening to it i never want to just flip it over and do it again not that i'm flipping over a cd but you know what i mean um so i feel like though that's something that we're kind of forgetting from the times though that you can't blame him as much for for scrapping those songs but he's not from that era he should have been like yeah let's scrap it um it's just an odd thing so i don't know uh, but i feel like the 90s are to blame not robert for that one <laughs> we can't blame the idea that like some of the songs it's just ridiculous that those b-sides aren't on there he says he would have gotten rid of return uh round and round and round and trap were the three he would cut which is so weird that he's doing this even for this album. Like no matter who talks about wild mood sings, it always goes back to like, what songs would you swap out and how would you rearrange it? Um, so it's pretty humorous that even an interview with Robert Smith, he's doing it and he says, even the 13th is a bit too odd. So he's saying basically there that it should have been a standalone single. I don't know if I'd totally cut, uh, yeah, I'd cut return and round and round trap. I'd probably keep on and cut uh numb instead. Um, he says that Ocean and Adonis should have made the album, and I totally agree, too. So there's two right there, especially Ocean, that song I adore. It's so good. So uh, the fact that that wasn't on there is ridiculous. So when you're making a, your acoustic chill version, acoustic album or whatever, definitely put Ocean on there. Um, so, yeah, lots, lots to reshuffle. Really odd. Um I don't know, another phrase that has been said a billion times between myself and Donald and anyone we've talked to about Wild Mood Swings is that there are some really amazing songs on this album, but unfortunately it's there's some of their worst songs that he's ever written are on this album too, so it's odd that it it is like a transition album of the later era Cure. Um, but I think it, it it's, it's always one that we have more conflict with because it's still got enough of the old school connection to it where you're like oh it was almost there it was so close maybe to some people a lot of people just are totally anti this whole album start to finish but i think it's you know the timing of it you know where i was in life just starting college it kind of fits with it all so maybe that's why i like this album a little more than a lot of people is because it I was like my first year of college, so I was kind of all over the place too, you know, like Wild Mood Swings. It was, <laughs> wasn't a very coherent time in my life. And um, so, yeah, it, it kind of fits with that as opposed to like four years later when I'll be a little like more focused but less enthusiastic with Bloodflowers. And that's the kind of way I felt about Bloodflowers when it came out initially. Learned to love that album a lot more. But, um, 
Yeah, it's crazy what four diff what four years time can do. Um, as we saw that going into wild mood swings, and you see that going out of wild mood swings. He wraps up the article with a quote that's pretty right on. He says, Wild mood swings was the last time we were genuinely off the wall when we were still young enough, just about, to get away with it. And, uh, yeah, I think it is true because this is like the last album where they just are trying everything. And I think it ultimately does boil down to that classic Robert Smith throwing a curveball that we've talked about through the whole history of this podcast and anything where you pick apart every Cure album and at each step, you know, when he's starting up the next one, he throws the curveball of like, whoa, you weren't expecting disintegration after Kiss Me, Kiss Me, were you? You weren't expecting, you know, Love Cats and or the synth pop sing- songs after pornography, were you? You weren't expecting 17 seconds even after Three Imaginary Boys. So, I mean, he's always done that and it's always worked. So, um, this is, like he's saying, the last time that they were maybe this was the last time that they did it because it didn't work really on this one this is probably the first example of where he totally spun it in a different direction and threw the curveball but instead of striking them out it got clobbered out of the park or he hit the batter if we're going to use baseball analogies so either way it was a surprise but it might not have been the surprise everybody was wanting um and you know, but I guess he's saying we to get away with it. They still were able to get away with it, you know. They still put it out and able to keep making records. It didn't like destroy their career or anything. And even ultimately, you know, I've said it a bunch on this where it's like, I don't think there's anything embarrassingly bad about this album. It's not like a fucking disaster record where he was like trying to rap or you know bring in like some hip young artist to sing with or something and duet with just to get more cred or anything or drastically change their style to fit the times i feel like it's just a some weird bad choices you know but ultimately you know some it's more just the songs aren't great you know and uh some of the approaches were questionable but it was like it's it you know obviously it didn't fucking hurt their career they're still going um you know Everyone just has their favorites. I think it's in the context of Cure albums that this really doesn't shine because the other ones are so flawless with their continuity of of themselves and other albums and stuff. But, I mean, that's kind of what makes me like it more now. Maybe I'm just so into it right now because I've been reading this and studying up on Nick Carr and stuff. But it's like it's such the oddball album that, you know, you got to have one in there. So, like, when you're totally sick of everything, this is, like, one I tend to go to a lot. Just because I'm like, what? Still, I don't know what the full deal with this album is, you know? And it's got enough that works, so it'll pull you in. But So, yeah, um, that's it. 25th anniversary. It's kind of funny in this article real quick, too. They um, have a section where they're talking about the new, new albums. The uh, infamous new album. Uh, it was really dropped early in the article, too. So I kind of pulled all that out and put it at the end here. And it's hard to say now, even um, since this magazine even came out, all the Simon business that's been, you know, on everyone's mind. Does this make all these points go out the window? Um, a lot of it's what we already had heard through the interview with the church's stuff when you when put out the church's song with her and all. Um, but uh, just to, to keep it relevant and up to date there, 
five points of interest that came from what he said regarding the new album uh, or albums. He says, one, initially, uh, you know, just recapping the fact that initially we recorded 20 plus songs early in 2019, but the festivals distracted him. So exactly what we were worried about and predicted would happen. He recorded 20 plus songs after the meltdown festival in early 2019, but then they started doing all the festival tours and they just kind of got distracted. Like you said, so that kind of makes you go a bit, even though those festivals are rad and I was glad to see them, but, um, you know, just should have stuck with that. So then in 2020, the pandemic hits, he says, I was working on them. Um, but I wasn't happy with the lyrics and the vocals and then I started to focus more on the noise project thing that he's doing. So this is kind of what we've heard uh, in the church's article, I believe, was the one that he said that he really didn't like the lyrics or where it was going. So he scrapped it all and was starting over on the lyrics. But then it sounds like that's where he started focusing on this noise project thing, which, you know, he's billing more as a solo, possible solo album. And who knows, maybe this will be the thing that first comes to light at this stage. Um, if the band doesn't even exist anymore. So who knows? Uh, on top of that, he says, then in 2021, starting at starting recording the vocals again, and now all that's left is for the band to play a few extra parts, which is another like, wait, what? <laughs> so I don't know. Technically, he could have recorded this article, an interview before doing the church's one, but... Uh, in the church's one, he said all they have to do is mix it, which I was even complaining about that. I'm like, come on, man. You said that on the last one. But now he's saying that the band still has to do a few overdubs and stuff. So I'm like, what the fuck? No wonder Simon freaked out. Maybe this is why he, he got mad or whatever. Then an argument about probably invited him over to dinner. says, oh, by the way, will you record a, a, some more bass lines? He's like, ah, the betrayal. Um, so who knows? Uh but it sounds like, I guess, one positive, if I'm trying to pull silver linings out, it sounds like he recorded the vocals now, and he's happy with those in the lyrics. So that sounds like it's all done. Who knows? Number four, he says, something will be out this year. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> what month is it? Is it going to be like September at least by the time this comes out, I think. So uh, we're running out of time now. We're getting into the, what do they call it, the fourth quarter of the year. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know, but he says, I think he even said, I promise at the end of that, I didn't put it in the quote I wrote down, but he said, something will be out this year. Um, so I don't know. Sure. Sure. It will. <laughs> um, number five, he says, so we're still sticking to the idea. Oh, I said, so he did mention the noise project, the heavy, sad album, and then the upbeat and he called it the more immediate album. So he's still sticking to this three album thing that I got to give him credit for. I thought we would have stopped hearing that angle like, you know, months ago even. But so who knows? Maybe all three will just get dumped on us, but I doubt it. Um, I'm kind of fascinated more about this upbeat, more immediate album. So what is that going to be? Just like a regular Cure album that's a little everything? Or um because we really haven't heard anything about that album. We've heard about the heavy, sad one. We've heard about the noise project thing. But what the hell's the upbeat, more immediate album? So that's like just like another 413 kind of dream album. Who knows? But um, so yeah, that's all the scoop I was able to dig out of this magazine. Um, uh, let me know if I missed something that you thought was a cool 
nugget that we uh, should put process in with all our wild mood swings history in our brains and thoughts on the new album of course who knows there but um but yeah i hope you enjoyed that if you haven't heard it i hope you enjoyed recapping it if you did get the magazine and we're also looking for highlights and uh i recommend even if you didn't get the magazine and you liked hearing all the all the highlights here from me get it too so you can reread it and extra process it and uh get the direct quotes and stuff from him because it's a lot better when you're reading in the article it's a good good lengthy article even though a lot of it is pictures um i think it's like 35 pages yeah 35 pages technically you know a lot of those like i said are pictures but um you know at certain parts i was like oh man it's gonna wrap up here and that's the end of it and then it'll continue on to the next section and i'm like oh cool awesome uh so it's definitely a good chunk of the magazine devoted to this um without going overly in depth to the past and stuff so um definitely worth it and uh, i'll definitely keep my eyes out for dek or deck magazine i don't even know what what the full deal is with this magazine but uh if they have other stuff in there, it's cool. I haven't really read any of the other articles yet, but there's a few new artists I haven't heard of that um, seem cool in this. So I'll uh, check them out. Lots of good artwork and stuff in here and just cool photography. But I'll leave you there. Thanks for sticking around and hearing me out. And uh, we'll have uh, some cool episodes coming up next. So keep your ears peeled to the podcast. There's always something on the horizon, and God knows what news will pop up between now and then so uh be sure to subscribe on apple so you don't miss any of these episodes you just let them drop right into your your little feed there i promise i won't storm them and swamp you with them uh we got the holy hour podcast on instagram as we're going to find the most immediate up-to-date information and announcements from the podcast and then going over to the facebook page where you can chime in on your teeth sense in the thread section there for each episode and uh check out any little bonus nuggets i'll throw some pictures up maybe um, i don't want to spoil all the photography so um you have to buy it to get that <laughs> but um check it out there and let me know what you think or just drop me an email at gavinconnor at gmail.com otherwise go listen to you some wow mood swings and uh mint car in particular to get all f refreshed on that tune because we got a wonderful episode coming up hopefully next where we talk nothing but mint car so until then talk hard Sorry.